Hi there. Hey there. Ho there. We're as happy as we can be. A little bit of uh, retro for you this morning as we crank it up here for hour number two of Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Beam. And this week and this week alone, we have Austin Barker making an appearance. By the way, are, are you on uh, standby for like next week or anything like that? I can be if you need me to be, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm just uh, just curious. That's probably an off-the-air you, question. You strike me I, as a curious, as the curious. I'm type. a curious, You're a very type. curious guy. Yeah. Well, my wife tells me I'm very incurious, because like people will tell me things, you know, uh, they'll tell me a small amount of information about something, right? And then I'll go tell Denise. I'll say, Oh, I saw so and so today. You know what they told me? What? Well, they told me blah blah, and she'll start asking me a series of questions, and I'll say, Well, I don't know. I don't. Did you have a conversation with him? Yes, I did, but I didn't ask those things. We talked about horse betting, you know, yeah, or whatever, equine advancement. Icebergs in the North Atlantic. <laughs> then we got around to the Titanic somewhere down the down the down the road. Um, okay, our our uh, theological topic for today is universalism. Now, for those of you who don't know what universalism is, it is the end result of extreme Armenianism. Okay, so you've got you know you got these polars, right? Calvinism, Armenianism, and Calvinism has a is kind of on a plane where or on a graph where you're you're way over way over here you're really really five point Calvinist and there's no room to wiggle, uh, or over here well I'm I'm kind of a three and a half point Calvinist that kind of thing. Uh, Armenianism is sort of the same way. You can be. Um, Armenianism focuses more on the will of man as opposed to the will of God, more on the free will of man as opposed to the sovereignty of God, the emphasis. Now, Armenians that I know, uh, who, by the way, they, the, Joseph Armenius is the leader, and of course, uh, John Calvin of the other side, but uh, Armenians that I know are... They they would not call themselves they would they would not say that they don't believe in the sovereignty of God. They simply say that they believe that within that sovereignty, God has sovereignly chosen to give people free will. And the Calvinists would not appreciate that. They don't believe that they think free will is kind of a phantom thing that exists but not really because of the nature of the sovereignty of God. Um, so let, let's let's don't go any further. So than that. that's but let interesting, me just, though, that you, that you see universalism as an extension of Arminianism. I, I wouldn't have thought that necessarily, but I but I see what you're I see the point you're making there. Well, I made I made comments. I think I've talked about this on the program before. I made comments when I was young and not very smart. You know, like in my preaching, I'd say Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. Uh, well, if that's literally true, then everybody's going to heaven. That's universalism because. Uh, you can't if if Jesus' death covers all sin, then there can't be anybody excluded. But Jesus' death on the cross, whereas Calvinists would say it was for the elect, I would say is for all who believe. And there's some nuances there because all who believe suggest that we have some role to play in in whether or not we believe. 
And Calvinists would say, well, no, that was that was set, you know, before you ever got here. But the typical so, universalist I think of is just a sentimentalist who just doesn't really can't reconcile themselves to the idea of a loving God sending people to hell. Yeah, that's probably, I mean, what, that, what, that's what, true. Heavens to Betsy, is that what you said earlier? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, heavens to Betsy, God wouldn't send would, Betsy to would, hell. He would never, he would never do that. I mean, she's, sort of she's my neighbor and she cooks cookies for us on the weekends, you right. know? They she's kind a nice of, person. They kind of call God's character into question when you suggest that uh, there's a hell. How so? Because, well, you know, God must be mean and unforgiving. How can you have a, a loving, forgiving God who, you know, puts people in eternal torment? Those two things seem to be at odds. And I understand that, that I mean, way for the, of thinking. Especially for the, simple th- for the simple reason of refusing to believe in him. You know, when, when all the wind seems to be blowing in the other direction anyway, God makes it hard to believe in him. I mean, yeah. it's not an easy thing to believe in God when there's such pain and suffering in this world. Well, uh, obviously, now you're talking about uh, theodicy, the question of how can there be evil in all the things you just described. And that's just one if thing. If God is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. If God is powerful enough to, to prevent it, if he's knowledgeable enough to prevent it, and, and he's he loves us, to. he's good yep. enough to want to prevent it, mm-hmm. then why do we have it? Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's where, in in my mind, your your free will begins to creep in there, because God God could do all of those things, but He allows us a measure of making decisions about all things, moral and immoral. And when we choose the path that takes us away from God's created order, then we create chaos and we bad things happen. Now, bad things happen even when people don't do that. In other words, we live in a fallen world, and the effects of the fall, there's a phrase in theology we use called the noetic effect of the fall, which basically uh, it relates back to Noah, the fact that all people were under judgment and died in the flood that were on the earth at that time, other than Noah and his family. And God demonstrated grace toward them. Uh, Noah found grace in the eyes of God uh, because he believed and so forth. So... um, where was I going with that? I just I got lost in Noah. The noetic effect Bad of the fall. Bad stuff happens. Yeah. Period. Well, Romans tells us that all creation groans. There's a, in fact, when you get into Romans chapter eight, there's a lot of groaning going on because it <laughs> you, we groan within ourselves when right. we don't know how to pray. Yes. With um, you know sentiments that God understands, um, we're, and the the creation itself groans looking for the day of redemption. And the reason is because we live in a fallen world, a world that's totally um, affected by sin. And so in that world, you have tornadoes and natural disasters and good people who are going along minding their own business who get caught up in the sinful decisions of others and sometimes are victims of natural disasters and things that you know you, you think deny explanation. But if everybody, you have to stop and think about it, if everybody got what they deserved on this side of eternity, then why have another side of eternity? Ooh, that's an interesting point. Because this is not where everything, all accounts get put into order. One of my favorite stories, I use, I use this still in preaching when it comes up, but about the two farmers. One farmer, you know, went out, planted his fields, planted his crops, um, and worked hard six days a week, Monday through Saturday, to plant his crop and to weed and to water 
and then to harvest. And the other farmer worked seven days a week, doubly on Sunday, planted all of his crops on Sunday, and then worked all week and then worked hard on Sunday, didn't go to church, didn't acknowledge God. And in at the end of the growing season in October, the farmer who never went to church had a better crop, had a better yield, and was financially better off than the farmer who observed Sunday as a day of rest and honored God in that way and honored God with his life. And so the farmer said, how can you believe in God when you've done everything that God has required of you, and yet, and I have flaunted the things of God, and yet I've prospered? And the farmer said, well, God doesn't settle his accounts in October. And so I've always loved that phrase. Mm-hmm. God doesn't settle his accounts in October. Right. This is not the ultimate harvest. So anyway, mm-hmm. that pushes us toward this conversation. And Dr. Mao makes a similar point in there, that the, yeah. that the justice of God right. demands that there's a reckoning. I mean, wouldn't it violate your own sensibilities to say, you know, and he uses the example maybe of a rape, of, a, of a person who traffics, a you know, sexually traffics a 13-year-old girl and profits right. from it. Right. Wouldn't, and if he got away with that his entire life... Wouldn't you want and there, there was to no, be a reckoning? For there him? was there was no repentance or coming to an understanding of the evil that he was perpetuating. Right. And he quotes. Uh, he uh, there's another person. I think was it? Yeah, Charles Spurgeon. No, Lewis is the one who yep. said that after a while, you so mar the image of God within your humanity that you simply carry the scars of that into eternity. You know, That's, you, that was a fascinating point. I yeah. think that was actually the guy from England, the N.T. Wright. No. That, that made oh, yeah, N.T. Wright. Uh-huh. Thank you. Uh-huh. It was not Spurgeon. It was Wright that right. said that. Yeah, that so, was fascinating to me. I, I don't yeah. know if I necessarily agree with that, but it was it's the first time I'd heard well, that. Well, no, you no, s- no. You know, I, I when I read that, I resonated with it because huh. you, you think about it. We're made in the image of God. Right. So we're not—I I made this statement last night at, at uh, Midweek Bible Study. We're, we are, by creation— um, made in the image of God, but we are, we don't become children of God until we come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Uh-huh. God becomes our father at that point. He's not our father. He's our creator hmm. who made us in his image hmm. until we are adopted into the family, grafted into the vine, brought into the family of God by the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from sin. And so, but everybody's born with the image of of God, the stamping, the um, it, it's it's what's inside that makes us hunger to be in tune with the one who created us. But as we mar that image more and more and more and more, it eventually becomes un- unrecognizable. Hmm. I mean, it's just like a um, you know, like a if you were to press your face into a mold, then immediately the mold would resemble you. But if you allowed that mold to deteriorate over time, there would come a point where a person would look at it and not be able to determine that that was that, you. That was probably Buddha That's, or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that, <laughs> that they would think that when they first looked at the mold <laughs> on me. But in, in any event, you know, um, this, this, is, this is kind of what N.T. Wright's saying. There comes a point where the image of God becomes unrecognizable and therefore, when you enter into eternity, you, you, you're simply taking with you the things that you have built up in this life. Mm. It's, a, it's a decision that you've made. Keller talks about this too, Tim Keller, mm-hmm. that um, hell, for those who 
end up there is a continuation of the choices that they've made on this side of eternity. Hmm. They've so rejected God that they would be completely out of place in his eternity. And his so so much of the identified with the uh, actions of the evil one that the evil one is the company that they would prefer to keep. So I want to interrogate that a little bit when we come back from the break, because I can understand that, you know, with the sensationally evil people that we think of as the tip, you know, the, the prototypes of evil. But for crying out loud, my neighbor who just doesn't really, hasn't really bit on the Christian thing, but is a really, really decent type of person. It yeah. seems like they haven't leaned in hard to the evil. Why do they get the same penalty? Okay, sure. We're discussing another article today from Christianity Today called I Am Not a Universalist, and it was written by Richard Mao, who served as president of Fuller Theological Seminary for about 20 years, uh, and it's about universalism. Uh, Todd left us, I guess. Uh, he's not there. Anyway, Todd, if you want to weigh in, uh, give us a call. There he is. He, maybe he's coming back. So anyway, uh, in the article, Mao starts out by saying, I'm not a universalist, but he also differentiates, differentiates himself, <laughs> I have trouble with that word today, um, by saying that a lot of his evangelical brethren and cistern, I guess, they <laughs> cistern's a big stone collection, place to collect water, uh, brothers and sisters. A, it's the female version of brethren. Yeah, yeah. I know well, about that stuff. Anyway. Um, English major. Yeah brothers and sisters, all, all of those of the evangelical persuasion, many people would say to him, I'm not a universalist because the Bible doesn't let me be, but I wish I could be, you know, which is an expression of concern over all these people that are good people that you were talking about a minute ago that, um, you know, are not going to be in heaven unless they come to know Christ and, as Savior. And even more than that, you know, I, I have a friend who listens to the program, Jim, and he had, he was cultivating a relationship with a guy who has struggled with alcoholism his entire life. And unfortunately, the guy passed away unrepentant. And so our Christian theology tells us that that man ended up in hell, unless, you know, barring some unknown to us right. conversion. Um, and it seems, that seems difficult for us to, to reconcile with the compassion of God who would understand a person in that circumstance, who understands the struggle, who understands the background that he came from, understands his, you know, it hardly seemed like he had a chance against his, you know, not friend Jack Daniels. It just yeah. seemed like he did not have much of a chance. And so we don't want to just consign that guy to hell without compassion. Well, and that's what David Bentley Hart argues in a book titled That All Shall Be Saved, Heaven, Hell, and Universal Salvation. Uh, Hart is a universalist, and of course, the, the question always gets raised to universalists, well, what about Hitler? What about Hitler? And Hart's uh, explanation is, well, they were, there were co uh, circumstances in Hitler's life that he was not able to overcome, and therefore, those circumstances rendered him unable to receive God's grace on this side of eternity. So it, that— He actually makes that case. He's okay yeah. with Hitler being in heaven. Well, yes, because if you're a universalist, that means if, if you let one person go to hell as a universalist— And that means more it, people. It ruins your theory, mm -hmm. because you, you can't—universalist it, it, is, is clear in its meaning. It means everybody. Mm. Um, so you can't have an exception. So you have to figure out how, you, how to get Hitler to heaven— apart from the grace of God. And his argument goes something like, well, there were all these things that were contributed 
to turning Hitler into Hitler that Hitler could never have overcome, and therefore God would not hold him accountable for all of those horrible things. But that flies in the face of any understanding of the justice of God or the nature of truth. Uh, if there is no justice, there can be no love because you love becomes a terrible thing. It is, it is a beautiful thing until it's marred by the embracing of evil and then, or, or, or the justifying of it in any sense, and then it becomes a terrible thing. So Todd's on the phone. Go ahead, Todd. Good morning. Good morning. Um, first of all, um, I do believe uh, in eternal heaven and eternal hell. Um, but isn't it God's fault, uh, not man's fault, due to the fact that He created the eternal heaven and the eternal hell? And also, I'm not a I'm not a mathematician, but I think there's probably going to be more people in, in eternal hell than there would be in heaven. Now, ultimately, God knows the human heart. And as far as uh, somebody that's born again, we will know them by their fruit. Yeah. Well, thanks, Todd. Um, I appreciate the call. And in, in terms of, um, you know, God create being the creator of heaven and hell, um, it doesn't, it, it, it's not God's fault that people go to heaven or hell because those two things exist. I mean, the fact is that people who go to hell do so by rejecting the measure that God has given that would get everybody out of hell. I mean, if, if, if everyone – here's, here's universalism, okay, in, in one sense. If everyone believed that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world and that he is Lord, then universally everyone would go to heaven because everyone who believes will be saved. So the miracle of God is considering the depth of our sin is not that, you know, that everybody go, would go to hell. The miracle is that anyone would get into heaven because once God created the heavens and the earth and he created humanity, humanity rebelled against God. And God in his mercy and great love chose to sacrifice his son, one part of the Trinity that had been eternally in coexistent fellowship with the Father for all of eternity. I mean, you know, a lot of people, when we think about God sacrificing his only son, the only corollary we have is us sacrificing our son. Well, we haven't been in an eternal relationship with our son for, I mean, that word speaks for itself, right? Eternity, the, the separation that took place on the cross between God the Father and God the Son was, a, was far greater of a traumatic experience than any of the pain and suffering that Jesus went through on, on the cross physically. I mean, the fact that for a moment there was, there was distance where there had never before been distance. There had only been oneness. And so, you know, God, in, in creating the world, God created us, and we rebelled against him. All of us deserve judgment. God grants mercy and grace to those who come to him through Jesus Christ. He opened the door to heaven for those who believe. And that's the miracle. The real miracle is salvation. William, um, go ahead. 
Hello? Yeah, you're there. Hey, that mean I agree with your uh everything you said was your theology on the uh on the sacrifice that God made. My question is with the universalists, how do they explain Luke sixteen when the guy says he's in the place of torment and wants to go back and warn his brothers? How do universalists try to fix that scripture basically? Yeah. Yeah, thanks, William. I appreciate the, the question. Here's how Hart does it. David Bentley Hart, in his book, That All Shall Be Saved, Heaven, Hell, and Universal Salvation, he says all that the Bible provides, he tells us, when it talks about hell, are a number of fragmentary and fantastic images that can be taken in any number of ways, arranged according to our prejudices and expectations, and declared literal or figural uh, figural or hyperbolic as our desires dictates. In other words, hell might not be hell, and if it isn't, no one goes there, of course, nor could God be taken as serious at all about avenging evil. So that the, lap, the last part of that was commentary by Mao, but the first part was Bentley trying to describe um, you know, the passages in the Bible, which he, you know, Jesus talked a lot about hell. I mean, his parables, many of them ended with, you know, they'll be uh, separated into eternal darkness where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. I mean, there there were several, and of course, the separation of the sheep and the goats, and you just mentioned William Luke. Uh, you, you can't read the Bible and not see that hell is real unless you find a way to discount those passages. And that's what a lot of, I mean, uh, th- that's what everybody does who carves out a um, an, an untruthful or non-theological path. To carve that out for themselves, they have to reinterpret, re-imagine, um, or just simply ignore passage of, uh, passages of Scripture that, that contradict them directly. So. I think that C.S. Lewis was really good on the issue of, you know, the good people, the good neighbor, um, who you just can't see going to hell, you know, um, he, right. because to, to Hart's point about, you know, that everyone's had these circumstances and, you know, there's mitigating circumstances that, you know, God should surely take those into account whenever he's telling people to hell for crying out loud or heavens to Betsy, I guess we're talking about. Yeah. Um, but, but Lewis says, you know, we don't really have a clear eyed view of our own sin. And it's easy for us to try and excuse and rationalize away the actual sin as as circumstance, and you know, as being a, you know as as being something that we're not really responsible for. We couldn't have chosen otherwise. But then there is the part where we're harder on ourselves, says Lewis, than we actually should be, and we think that we're responsible for things that we have. You know, I think about children, raising children, and the guilt that a lot of parents face over how their children turn out, and it's like at some level, you've got to realize that you're not to blame. You, you you know, you did your best, and your kids turned out how they turned out, and you're not responsible for that. So those are the types of situations where Lewis says, listen, God knows what is actually your responsibility and what's not, and he's going to sort all that out. You have to trust him. It really comes back down to trusting God. I almost think that's Hart's issue, is that he doesn't trust God to really execute justice. Well, right. And he doesn't believe, uh, I mean, you you have to deny the justice side of God in order to say that there's no hell. Because, you know, God, there are plenty of promises in the scripture 
where God says that the cry of those who have been oppressed Definitely. will be answered, that there's going to be retribution. There's yes. going to be a day of payment for the people who have been mistreated or done or treated unjustly in this life. And I love how you, you know, your point about the farmer, um, the flip side of God doesn't settle accounts in October is that, you know, in Ecclesiastes it says, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, because people do bad things and get away with them for so long right. that the heart of man is fully set in him well, to do evil. And we, we need to understand something about the nature of sin, capital S-I-N. And I, I, I talk about this all the time. There's sin, and out of sin come sins. Mm-hmm. And it's a small s, and it's plural. Uh, it's not our sins that separate us from God and send us to hell. It's our sin. What is our sin? Our sin is choosing to to not accept God's gift of eternal life through his son, Jesus Christ, but to remain in our sin and to reject God. That's, that's the big sin. And if you live your life with that philosophy, then sins are going to characterize you. But when you look at your neighbor who's a good guy and he let you borrow the lawnmower uh, and he didn't, you know, call the police when he found out your fence was six feet on his property, that, that kind of thing, you know, and you think, well, this is a good guy. This is somebody I'd like to sit down and have a Coke Zero with. Um, so why would I want to picture him in hell? Well, uh, there are none who are good. If you look at Romans chapter 3, Every throat is an open sepulcher. I mean, it's the description of sin, whether we manifest that sin with multiple sins or not. The original sin of rebellion against God that exists in all who do not believe is enough to separate them from a holy God for all eternity. You know, holy means, I mean, there is a perfection that God dwells in that we can't understand because we've never lived in a state of perfection. We've never known it. We're born in sin. And so the question, you know, when you talk about evangelism explosion or uh, CWT, continuous witness training, or EE, or any, yeah, well, that's evangelism explosion, any of these things, um, you know, there's, there, there's a question. Usually the question is, how are you going to answer the question, why should God let you into my to his heaven? In other words, heaven is a place where there is no sin. It's a place of perfection. And so in order to get there, you can't take your sin with you. It has to be, and since we're all sinners, we have to have our sin covered by the grace of God through the fact that we have received Jesus Christ is the Savior, the path. In that sentence right there, you said we have to have our sin covered. That's the capital S again, right there. That's that, is that yeah, right? Not that's, our sins covered. We tend to think of, you know, my sins have been covered by the blood. You're talking about my sin. Jim on Facebook, see, I'd, I'd like to see if, if he's got this right. He says, they get the same penalty because they are in the line of Adam, sinner by birth, not just sinner because he sinned. Is yeah, that that's right. right. Is he getting it well, right that's what I'm talking about. Sin, mm-hmm. capital S. Mm-hmm. You're born with capital S. You're born in capital S. The rebellion against God. Mm-hmm. You you are rebellious. I've I've used this illustration forever um, with my own son, who I remember this event. His name is Adam, of, isn't it? Adam is his name. <laughs> and in that's the nature, so cool. in the nature of Adam, 
when he was 18 months old, he toddled over to the window blind and reached out to grab it. And I, I stopped him. I said, Adam, don't touch. Now That sounds the, so much like the Garden of Eden. I'm telling you, he turns around and looks at me. And out of the innocence of my beautiful firstborn's eyes come pure evil because I could tell that he was not going to listen to me. Hiss of the serpent and right there. he turned around and grabbed that window blind and turned around and looked back at me. So what you got you a couple of things. He, he looks at me, hell, are, you, are you telling me what to do? And then he turns around, bang, I grabbed the window blind. Then he looks back and says, now what are you going to do about it? Mm. And about two seconds later, he found out what I was going to do about it. But here's <laughs> and because he was the firstborn, it was he extra. was the first. It, it was, was well, it, it it was a you know it was a padded paddle. So, <laughs> but no, but here here's the thing, um, that I uh, the point is that up until that moment in his life, mm-hmm. I had taught him how to sit up. I tried to teach him how to walk. I taught him how to hold a spoon. I taught it. There's so many things that he, I knew he was going to need to know that I needed to teach him because he came here not knowing any of them. Mm-hmm. And yet I never sat down with him at the table and said, Adam, someday you're going to want to disobey me. Let me explain to you how that works. Mm. I tell you to do something. You do the opposite. Got it? Yes, Daddy, I got it. So then on that day he goes over. I didn't have to tell him that. Wow. He was hardwired from the moment he broke the air of earth and took his first breath, Hmm. he was hardwired for sin. He was born a sinner, and sinners fulfill their job description. They sin. Hmm. But it's the sinner part that has to be made right. Born in Adam, redeemed in the second Adam, as Paul describes him, who is Jesus Christ, the, 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 the perfect Adam. What Adam did not achieve... Jesus achieved. Adam lost it in the garden. Jesus received in the garden. His assignment went to the cross and reversed what Adam did not do. Uh, but he only did it for those who believe. That's beautiful. I uh, spent the whole break on the telephone, so I don't know what I'm doing. Okay, we were going to talk about American sports uh, not being proof that socialism works. And I did kind of want to get into that. And we've got... Uh, you know what? We're so close to the <laughs> to the last break. Um, I, I think what I'm going to do is. Well, can I ask you one quick question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that because, okay? because, and I think this is something you can probably. We went in way long minutes. in that yeah, last yeah, segment. Yeah. This, yeah. this is just kind of wrapping up that last conversation. Um, one of our listeners on Facebook, Rick, asks if God never intended to send people to hell, then why were Adam and Eve given a choice in the Garden of Eden? Maybe I'll append my question onto that. If God never intended to send people to hell, why did He create it in the first place? Well, the Bible's re- really clear about that. Hmm. Um, hell was created for the devil and his angels. So, Wait, do you remember where that is? Because it seems like that. I, I remember that verse. I, I can't. I, can't I, I couldn't tell you the address. I, I, can't, I, I can't. I can't okay, give you okay. the address. But I know that. But I know that that's true. Yeah, that's right. And so the purpose, the purpose of hell, was not for those created in the image of God, but it, it, the devil and his and and his angels were sent there because of their rebellion against the character, the nature, and the authority of God. And so we end up in hell for the same reason, um, not for any particular thing that we do, except for that one particular thing, which is to reject the character 
excuse me, the character, the nature, and the authority of God. And so to Rick's question, why give them a choice in the first place? I mean, it almost seems like this whole human experiment thing was a failure of two-thirds or three-quarters or whatever percentage. One of our callers, I think William earlier, was talking about, you know, that the overwhelming majority of humans will end up in hell. Well, my uh, and, and actually, uh, Spurgeon, in this uh, article, uh-huh. had an interesting take on that. Okay. He said that we find in the Scripture where it says, it, it talks about the word multitudes— will be in heaven, mm-hmm. but we never find a passage that says about the number that will be in hell, so what the do you multitudes that will that? be in hell. Well, I don't con- I don't really conclude. I-, I think that's one of those things that you just go, oh, well, that's interesting, huh. because you can't really draw a conclusion from it. Okay. Here, here's my conclusion to I mean, all it of it. it is straight as the gate, and narrow is the way, and few there be that find it. Right. And broad, and wide, is, the broad is the road. There you go. So, so there's, but there's not a number. There, there you don't ever find a term like, the multitude, you know, in the scripture we hear the num people without number, every tribe, tongue, and nation. But if you're you Jehovah's know. Witness, it's only 144,000. <laughs> okay, but we're not. So, all right, breadcrumbs. We need breadcrumbs. Lead me back to the the point. So of the why question. give them a choice? In the oh, why place? give them a choice? Well, I think um, I think love demands a choice, hmm. and I've I've thought this. You know, uh, Denise and I are incredibly blessed. Uh, I was talking to my daughter about this in that so many people that spend their lives together either become bitter at each other or they just accept the fact that they're married and they're not going to get divorced now because it's too late, you know, kind of thing. Now, that's not everybody, and it may not even be the majority, but I'm just saying I know there are people that live their life that way. Mm. Denise and I are blessed in that we, we genuinely love each other and it is a beautiful thing to live with a woman that you love for these many, many years and experience life together out of a foundation of the of the genuine love that we that we have for each other. So I think but but if she could make me love her mm-hmm. or I could make her love me, mm-hmm. what what have what have we gained? You've lost Lo- we, we don't we've lost it all. Hmm. Love that is not chosen is a love that is coerced or supernaturally imposed. And there'd be some who would say, well, so what? Why didn't God just make us love each other? Because th- that's not love. <laughs> I, I can't, I think love has to be Choice defined. built into the definition. At, at there, there, in order mm. for it to be genuine, mm-hmm. there has to be the possibility of not love. Mm. Because if there is no other choice, then it's just an empty thing. And so I think, you know, God wants us, he desires us to praise him, but he's not going to force us to do it because in forcing us, it's more meaningful, the value of praise, the value of adoration, the value of exaltation is lost if there isn't the possibility of rebellion. And so the possibility was offered, but so was out of his grace and out of his mercy so was the opportunity for redemption for those after the Taurus was made to not follow God's uh, plan. That's why ChatGPT will never be human, is because it can't say no when I tell it to write a 5,000-word essay on given topic. <laughs> All right. Uh, American sports, is it proof that socialism works? Um, this is a great piece today by Christian Schneider over at National Review, uh, and I, I'm I'm just very thankful for National Review. They they are thoughtful conservatives who write from a very um, intelligent uh, and informed way 
defending conservatism by principle rather than just making ad hominem attacks, which is a lot of times what progressives do against conservatives. So in any way, um, let's see. This week, The Economist, I'm, I'm reading from this article today at, at uh, National Review. This week, The Economist trotted out the tired line that American sports, while allegedly a free market meritocracy, is actually run by a secret cobble of socialists. The column notes that American leagues such as the NFL feature salary caps, player drafts, which redistribute talent and resources to less fortunate teams. Now, you, you think about what he's saying. Here. Yeah, the lottery system. Is yeah. If you have a bad record, you gave a losing season, you get higher. Yeah, you, in the, you're higher yeah, in your in draft, draft picks. Yep. Mm-hmm. So they're spreading the wealth around, in other words, okay, in a, in a socialistic way. Yeah, you get rewarded for doing badly. The system is socialism in action, the economist notes. As Karl Marx almost said, each player, according to his abilities, is assigned to each team according to its need. (laughs) That's a pretty good line right there. Uh, The calumny against American sports is an old one. Uh, In his 2012 book, The New, New Rules, comedian Bill Maher fingered socialism as the reason the NFL was so great, singing the praises of the league's income redistribution plan. The NFL literally shares the wealth. TV is their biggest source of revenue, and they pull out all uh, and they pull put all of it in a big commie pot and split it 32 ways, Mara said, adding that the same angry white males who hate Obama because he's redistributing wealth just love football a sport that succeeds economically because it does just that. Now, not to be outdone, the New York Times' uh, Benium Applebaum produced a 2020 video in which he claimed to uncover rampant socialism in the NBA, further arguing that the concepts meant to cap team success are what American society as a whole is missing. In the column that appeared with the video, he wrote that the NBA knows that unregulated competition would be a disaster. In the same year, Applebaum set himself apart by accusing Pete Buttigieg of fixing Canadian bread prices. And the NBA rules could help to revive the American economy, too. All of this, and this, this is where, this is where um, um, Schneider really begins to lean in. All of this, of course, is errant, ignorant nonsense, trotted out by nerds believing they finally bested the jocks. American sports leagues are not examples of socialism. They are, strong, they are a strong refutation of it. Each league is a mega corporation acting in a free market in competition for entertainment dollars. And the one product each, each league has to sell is competition. So the socialism in sports dorks think each NBA team is like a separate fast food chain, all competing for customers until the league levels the playing field by taxing the rich ones and giving to the poor ones. But this is completely wrong. It is sports leagues themselves that are the burger joints in competition with one another, and the league's skyrocketing revenues are proof that the free market battle for sports dollars is fierce, thriving, and conducive to creating a superior product. NFL knows the same thing. So in other words, you've got within a, um, in, in this, in a free market system, the NFL and the NBA and Major League Baseball could not exist without the dollars that flow from a free market 
into their products, which they make better through a system that encourages competition. Because without competition, you don't have any customers. Nobody wants to watch a game where the outcome is a foregone conclusion. My son is a big fan of IndyCar racing, and he's explained that to me, you know, that IndyCar racing is basically dominated by two or three teams every year. Um, and you, you know, it's, it becomes everybody else is just out there riding around the track and, and the ones that are going to win the, the, the races and get the titles are the ones who have these, the money, uh, and the ability to put these, uh, teams out there. And, and that's why NASCAR, you know, has rules that make the cars run equally. Okay. So that that when you just because you've got more money, more whatever, you 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 can't have that as a as a final advantage to putting down all of the competition. Yeah, the determiner has to be the skill with which you can navigate that equal that's, car. That's right, competition. Mm-hmm. And where there is no competition, NASCAR is far more popular a sport than IndyCar racing, and it's because of the level of competition. NASCAR has really pushed that. Now, I thought it was because IndyCar banned alcohol at their... <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. I now, IndyCars... Look, IndyCars are fascinating. Uh, and those races are, are pretty amazing because of the speeds. I mean, you're in NASCAR. They, they've uh, reduced the speed in NASCAR. Uh, they put governing uh, governors on the, on the cars. They can run only so fast. Uh, I think Indy cars can run as fast as you can get a car to run. And so it's pretty fascinating stuff. But the competition is what makes it. Uh, the NFL knows that football teams can't compete against each other in the same way that Best Buy competes with Target or Macy's, competes with Nordstrom. Instead, the league is competing with the NBA, Major League Baseball, movies, all forms of entertainment for dollars. That's why it knows it has to sell competition as its product and do it better than the other leagues. And thus, it created the hard salary cap and revenue sharing to make sure fans in Green Bay can be just as excited about their team as fans in New York. See, one of the things that was happening with baseball is when the New York uh, Yankees became a dynasty. I mean, it was all, who was winning the World Series? Yankees, Dodgers. Yankees, Dodgers, Dodgers, Yankees, and it got boring. So now what do you have? You have teams that can come from nowhere and get in a World Series games game. And the way that the playoff system has been designed is to give teams that opportunity. Same thing with the NCAA basketball tournament. I mean, you've got, you know, the, the teams can come from nowhere that all of a sudden they it doesn't seem that they should be able to compete with the big teams, but they, they become the Cinderella team that makes it all the way to the Sweet 16 or the Final Four or maybe even wins the championship. TCU, so yeah. what is it? Yeah, TCU. But so what is it that, that keeps you? That whole system you? is slanted against Dallas because Dallas is never going to get in. It doesn't matter, yeah. so, just so we know. <laughs> what? <laughs> thank you. Uh, what? So what? What? Uh, what is it that makes you – want to get into the NCAA tournament. See, I'm not a college basketball fan. I'm, I'm not a big basketball fan, period. Football and baseball are my sports. Mm-hmm. I love them. So, but basketball, okay. But when the NCAA tournament comes along, I want to watch those it's games. Electric. It really is. It is electric. And because it's because you never know what's going to happen. You, the, create, the, the creation of competition makes that 
exciting. Mm -hmm. Now, that helps you understand a little bit about what baseball is up to when it eliminates the shift and puts the pitch clock in, in place. I wondered about that. Well, it's because they're competing with other sports. They're competing with other entertainment things that they've got to be able to give people what they want. People, and apparently, I'm in the minority. I mean, I'd go sit at a baseball stadium all day. If it took all day to play a game, I wouldn't care. I'd take a day off and go watch baseball. What uh, would you do during the whole well, day? But I mean, because you have I to do something that. besides just watch baseball because there's so little to watch. There, oh, you, you see, you're not a baseball fan, <laughs> no, so you, not. No, I can, I can tell. Um, I mean, there's all kinds of strategy and things going on Watching on the field. Watching the drama that, in the dugout or what? No, it's not. Hey, the, I knew the word dugout. I know something about baseball. Right? That's very good. Very good. <laughs> At least you don't think it's a canoe with natives in it. So, and and in any any event. Um, they're, that's what baseball is doing. They're trying to compete. Uh, they're trying to make sure that the teams are competitive so people will want to watch it. And so, so the, the bottom line is that you could not have the NFL, the NBA, or Major League Baseball in a system that doesn't work from a capitalist standpoint. Uh, people go to games because the outcome is not predetermined. Maybe their team will win. Maybe it will lose. And, of course, some teams are better than others. If the rich NBA teams could just buy all the best players, teams such as Milwaukee, San Antonio, and Oklahoma City would barely exist. A huge chunk of the league would just be dead teams walking. So to inject some sort of competition, the league tries to level spending and gives the worst teams the best draft picks. That's that. So th this business that is socialism and proves that socialism works is nonsense, okay? Capitalism is the best system in the world. It's not perfect, but it's so much better than all the rest. All right, we'll see you tomorrow, 7 o'clock. God bless you. Have a good day.